A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this uh, episode, which is part two about the life and times of Rabbi Victor Miller, has been generously sponsored in memory of Rabbi Yisrael Mordechai known as Srili Miller, a big Balchesed, a big heart, who did a lot, a lot for many people. And it was a grandson of Rabbi Victor Miller, who was very close with him, he used to study Chavrusa with him, was a volunteer in Hatzalah in Brooklyn, and a very, very good man who was uh, tragically killed in a car accident in the last year of his grandfather's life. And there was a you know tragic story in the whole family at the time. Um, and uh, this episode is sponsored by his loving family. So we're going to get into the part two, left off part one last week about uh, Rav Victor Miller when he arrives back in the United States after his uh, time uh, of studying in Slabatka. And now we'll talk about the early years of his career in the rabbinate and also in education um, in the uh, 1940s, 50s, 60s. We'll see how far we get. Uh, before that, just going to mention that there was a, recently a, um, a uh, Journeys, uh, a five historic music event. Uh, well, A.B. Rottenberg released uh, Journeys number five, which is itself, uh, you know, A.B. Rottenberg and Journeys is, of course, part of modern Jewish history, but also the, what struck me was a couple of uh, history songs, about the Holocaust, about rebuilding after the Holocaust, um, so you might want to check those out as well. Also, coming up next week is Davi Safir and I have some really great stuff for you in the Mishpacha magazine, the Pesach edition, a long feature article, which I think uh, you'll all, uh, all the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites and their family and friends will find interesting, and, uh, and then an extended for the record as well, all in the Pesach edition, so keep your um, keep keep yourself tuned for that, and I hope you enjoy that as well. I got an enormous amount of feedback from part one. Apparently, Rebecca Miller is very popular, and people have a lot to say. Um, and I'll try to incorporate parts of it here in part two, and also uh, coming up next time in part three, which is going to be next week. There are stories of encounters, comments, critique. Um, and especially, 
what I was able to get was a, a former member of his shul, who was a member of his shul for decades, was extremely close with him, was very gracious in providing a lengthy background information, stories, impressions, experiences, pages and pages and pages of amazing information. It was very gracious of him to share that. And I wanted to publicly thank him for everything he shared, but he asked that he remain anonymous, that I not mention his name. So I'm assuming that his modesty is also something that he imbibed from the atmosphere of being around the Ravigda Miller. So I will respect his anonymity, and I would still like to express my gratitude for all that he shared, and hopefully I'll get a chance at the end of this episode or in part three to uh, incorporate some of what he shared as well. I just want to read a part of one letter, another letter that someone else wrote in, um, as follows. Here it goes. You mentioned in the beginning of the episode that you don't know if today's generation would be able to handle Herbert Victor Miller. Strangely enough, the opposite is true. You may not be aware of this living in Israel, but Herbert Victor Miller is ten times more popular today than he ever was in his lifetime. His popularity in his lifetime was pretty niche and not as widespread. However, these past few years, the very popular weekly Tyrus of Victor comes out and is read by tens of thousands of people. The weekly Tyrus of Victor is distributed in every shul and it is already printed weekly in English, Yiddish, and Hebrew. It is available online and by email. It is wildly popular, especially among women. And another unique phenomenon which which happened already started in his own lifetime is his popularity among Hasidim. So that's very interesting. That's, of course, contemporary, which I'm always uh, less aware of uh, than the history. So, But that's a, I guess it's an interesting tidbit. Um, I want to acknowledge once again the usefulness of the book, the biography that was put out about Rabbi Vigda Miller that I mentioned already in part one and how I used it so much here in part two. Um, and uh, much of the material comes from there. So uh, Miller, when he returns from the United States, first he's in Baltimore without a position, and he's hired as the rabbi of Chelsea, Massachusetts, shortly after his return, which is a suburb of Boston. It had a sizable Jewish community at the time with several shuls. He was the rabbi there for six years, from 1939 until 1945. Um, the expectations of a congregational rabbi at the time was uh, pretty minimal, an orthodox one, especially outside of New York. Um, there were over 20,000 Jews who resided in Chelsea, uh, primarily were immigrants or second generation from immigrants. And Ravigda Miller planned on doing much more than what was expected of, an, of a congregational rabbi. He actually wanted to really go ahead and build something. He was the rabbi of the main street, the, excuse me, the main shul there. It was called the Walnut Street Shul, or the Litvisher Shul. It had 1,100 seats. Um, and, um, and the first thing he did was to purchase the right to deliver a daily Gemara class. This would be a consistent policy of his throughout his decades in the rabbinate, was that he wanted to engage the layman, the, his congregants, working congregants with Torah classes, Torah study, especially Gemara, educating the laity, believing in the potential of the laity, of his congregants, who were working people with limited Jewish education very often, and he believed in their potential to become, to, that it's incumbent upon them, and that they could become quite knowledgeable and capable in their Talmudic studies and knowledge. That was one thing that really is a thread throughout his long life and career. It was one of his greatest vis visions, and ultimately it was his accomplishment as well, as he was able to to uh, to do that. He'd take people who were 
from beginners, and, and, and many of his balabatim eventually were quite accomplished Talmud HaChachamim, and really an amazing uh, amazing accomplishment that he uh, was able to do. His first Shabbos in Chelsea, he announced from the pulpit that he would study with the congregant's children free of charge at any time and as often as was desired. And there was no formal Jewish education to speak of aside from the afternoon Talmud Torah, so he made this offer, and he repeated the announcement every week, and it was basically ignored. Um, but he didn't give up. He organized youth groups for separate groups for boys and girls on Shabbos afternoon to teach them about Judaism. Um, and then he has this incredible story about this fellow named uh, Yisrael Yaakov Kaufman, who was an orphan from Shepetovka in, the, in Ukraine. And this fellow became his prized student and ally in, in, in Chelsea. Um, um, the, uh, the Rabbi Vigda Miller opened a Talmud Torah and there was opposition to it because there already was another Talmud Torah but Rabbi Vigda Miller wanted to teach in his own Talmud Torah and his own way uh, eventually later on I think it was uh, quite a few years after Rabbi Vigda Miller left the town uh, that, the, that this Talmud Torah uh, shifted into a full time day school um, this Israel uh, Yaakov Kaufman was involved in that and took it over. He also, this Kaufman, uh, Mr. Kaufman, started the Hever Kedisha. Um, this Mr. Kaufman was involved in sending children from Chelsea to go to Camp Aguda to go eventually to Yeshiva Tervidas to increase their religious observance and education. Later on, Ravigda Miller said, There is something, sometimes a greater benefit in investing all your energies into one Talmud rather than dividing your energy between many students, since properly teaching this one student can change the future of the Jewish people. Even if this is all I accomplished, I will have a share in the world to come. Mr. Kaufman is my ticket to Ganadin, which is an incredible statement. So you see what you know, one influence can do. Um, Rabbi Vigda Miller, like I said, opened a new Talmud Torah where he himself taught, where there was more religious instruction than the average afternoon Talmud Torah in those days, including Gemara, which was uh, quite a novelty for a Talmud Torah. And uh, when this Talmud Torah entered their own new building, um, Rabbi Yitzhak Kutner uh, from Chaim Berlin came from New York to speak, as did Rav Salvechik from the nearby Boston, with whom Rabbi Vigda Miller also had a relationship and he would send uh, graduates of this Talmud Torah to go study in Chaim Berlin in New York. And uh, Miller was active in many other local institutions. He also sold war bonds during World War II to help with the U.S. war effort. Uh, he didn't want to send his own children, to, his sons anyway, uh, to public school. And he asked the first Boston Rebbe of Pinchas David Horowitz in Boston his adv- advice about what should he do about his son's education. I'm assuming that this story took place immediately when Rabbi Vigda Miller arrived in Chelsea because he came there in late 1938 and the Boston Rebbe moved uh, from Boston to Williamsburg in 1939. So they only overlapped there for a couple of months. Um, so if if this story is accurate, then that he sought out his advice and it must have happened immediately upon his arrival. In any event, he didn't come up with any uh, 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 great solution. The solution was to homeschool them. Um, the girls went to public school, and they, you know, they of course, did not even have a Talmud Torah for girls at the time. And so he decided eventually to move to New York City, even though he didn't know what type of job he would have. Uh, he wanted to have more educational opportunity for his children. But through an interesting turn of events, he was hired as the Mashgiach 
in the Yeshiva Chaim Berlin in Brownsville. And in early 1945, he moves to Brooklyn, where he would remain for the rest of his life. He seldom would even leave the city. He, 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 would, he wouldn't leave Brooklyn that, all that often for the rest of his life either. Uh, would almost never take vacation and very seldom would leave for visits or you know, to speaking engagements, stuff like that. But um, he, he pretty much stayed in Brooklyn once he, once he was there. Um, so he's the Mashkiach at Chaim Berlin for 20 years, from 1945 to 1965. So Chaim Berlin was opened as an elementary school in Brownsville in 1904. A decade later, when the Nitziv's son, Reb Chaim Berlin, passed away in far away in Jerusalem, his half-brother, Reb Meir Barilan, who was living in New York at the time, suggested that they name the yeshiva for him. And that's how they got the name Chaim Berlin. It was originally Tiferes Bachura. When it was really the first yeshiva in that area of Brooklyn. In 1936, a high school was added to the elementary school. And it was around this time that Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner was hired to join the faculty. And many other important rabbis and teachers were there as well. Some years later, a post-high school program was added to the yeshiva. And they moved into a new building in 1945 in Brownsville. And Brownsville, of course, at the time was one of the greatest centers of Jewish life in all of New York City. Um, so it was at the center of, of what was a major Jewish neighborhood in, uh, in New York at the time. And Chaim Berlin had a couple of hundred students by this time when Rabbi Vigdor Miller arrived there. It's worth noting that the founders of the yeshiva were a group of laymen in 1904 who wanted an alternative to public school. It's worth pointing this out because very, very often the famous rabbis get all the credit um, for building Torah and and uh, many of them uh, have, have books written about them, but it's really the initiative of often anonymous laymen who were not very scholarly or even knowledgeable, but yet they are the ones who did everything they could to create an alternative to public school, whether it was Chaim Berlin or Tarev or Tefer or other schools, and which during the early years of the century was quite an impressive accomplishment because everyone else was sending to public school. And later on, it was these laymen, these Balabatim, who would be the board members who would be seen as not religious enough for the rabbis that they had hired, and there was always this uh, tension and conflict. But these, at the end of the day, these people were great uh, heroic builders uh, and visionaries, and have gone. And you know, most of their names are forgotten to history. Either way, I digress. Um, so Rabbi uh, Rabbi Miller settled in East Flappish, where he would remain for the next thirty years, which is not not in Brownsville, but not that far away. Um, so Rav Miller becomes the Mashkiach. He's in charge of discipline, education, Musr. Um, at this time, he struggles financially. The yeshiva was struggling financially. Um, and he had a good working relationship with Rav Hutner, despite the fact that they were different personalities, very different personalities. They had great respect for each other. They're both alumni of Slobodka, though, though they were there at different times. And Rav Miller remained there for 20 years. Um, he... Um, his reputation, Rav Miller's reputation for structure, orderliness, exactness, keeping to a perfect schedule, all came to the fore during his Chaim Berlin years, and it was a major part of his educational program that he inculcated his students with there. 
Students learned from his personal example, and he served as a role model. Many of them were from less observant homes, and he served as a paradigm for many of them in the behavior and growth, his punctuality, the way he prayed, his care for them, his diligence in his Torah study, his concentration and his focus in his Torah study. He would finish Shas every year. One time he was his concentration was too intense, he felt like he needed a break. So he got on a subway, went to the Manhattan, to the United Nations building, and he went to listen to speeches there through the uh, earphones, through the simultaneous translation into English. That was his one time he took a break. Um, he would walk two miles to uh, to every day back home from from the yeshiva, but he often would take public transportation, city buses. Um, he also attempted to strengthen the Musr Seder in the yeshiva. Uh, attendance, the, the Musr, punctuality, and he also advised the students which sfarim to study. Also, the manner of how they should study. He taught it should be done loudly, as had been done in the pre-war Musr yeshivas, to, to you know, to uh, make it more of an impact. One time it was too quiet for his taste, and he said, we are now observing a moment of silence in memory of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. That was his uh, facetious way of, of uh, you know, expressing his displeasure with how, how it was too quiet by the Musr Seder. He would greet everyone at the entrance uh, to the base medrash in the morning to ensure punctuality. No tardiness was allowed, and he would find those that came late, but he would never keep the money for himself. It always went for the yeshiva or for the married scholars in the kolal of the yeshiva. He would often, uh, but at the same time that he would find them, he would give latecomers sometimes from his own money to purchase, uh, to to go ahead and buy breakfast because he felt that uh, you know, they they needed breakfast. Even if they were late, they need to eat. It was imperative in order to begin their day properly for them to eat. He, so once someone came late and his excuse was that he had just gotten engaged the night before. So Rabbi de Miller accepted this excuse. He says, Mazel Tov, and he says, just make sure it doesn't happen again. He was opposed to celebrating Thanksgiving, believing that it was a religious holiday, but when a student of his from a non-observant home consulted with him about Thanksgiving, he advised him to try to get his parents to purchase a turkey from a kosher butcher. And when they did not, Rabbi Miller paid for the turkey himself from the kosher butcher. Uh, he encouraged his students to sleep well, believing it to be a cure-all for physical and mental ailments. A good night's sleep and eating regular meals and keeping a schedule, he felt, was the recipe for growth in Torah as well. He would provide for all sorts of necessities for his students. He would show care, notice, he would notice their subjective needs. He sometimes would distribute funds for them for food, medical care, clothing, doling out advice for dental hygiene, dressing warmly, healthy eating, outward appearances, health care. He once uh, noticed that an orphan in the yeshiva drew pictures in his spare time. So he praised his artwork offered encouragement for each one individual circumstances and personal challenges, while also at the same time making demands on their growth. Uh, also, One of his innovations was to teach public speaking to a group of his students at Chaim Berlin. Um, he would tell them to verbalize out loud, uh, either from Ein Yaakov in Yiddish, when they were alone, alone in their room, or from English literature classics, to just speak out, speak it out aloud, just to get used to the idea of speaking publicly. He, would, he believed that it was very important to, to be able to make an impact on the Jewish people to be an orator. Um, it was a skill that needed to be learned. Every week, the members of this group would have to deliver a five-minute speech on a given topic, and he would even make disturbances to uh, simulate a, a, a uncooperative crowd and that they, to teach them not to get flustered from people schmoozing in the back during a speech and stuff like that. 
Um, Rebecca Miller himself was quite uniquely an orator, a rather rare skill within the Lithuanian Torah world, and he felt that uh, it was needed. Uh, so he trained others as well. He felt that public speaking was an important leadership and Torah teaching skill and for the education, and for education also to instill confidence in his students' abilities. One student didn't feel he was able to speak clearly, so Victor Miller advised him, he said, go study Lubavitcher Hasidim. He said, all Lubavitcher Hasidim speak clearly and with a certain assertiveness. And he said, you know why? It's because of the Rebbe. The Lubavitch Rebbe enunciates each word clearly. Listen by the Fabrengans when he speaks, when he says a mimer. Everyone should learn from the Rebbe and from the Hasidim who are, who are, who are students of the Rebbe to learn how to speak. Uh, Victor Miller's uh, friend from Slabatka, Mordechai Shulman, related to him that he heard from the Chavetz Chaim that if the Chavetz Chaim would have, uh, Chavetz Chaim said, if he would have had another chance, he would have learned how to speak publicly, as this would have enabled him to have more of an influence on people. Miller did not deliver shmuzin in the yeshiva, but in the 1950s he began delivering private, what he called vadim, which are like kind of like private little meetings with you know closed discussions with. Uh, a closed group. These would be muster discussions, discussions with specific goals in, in personal growth and character traits and stuff like that. And it would be either in his house on Saturday nights for students of Chaim Berlin, later on for the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway, Friday nights, Friday afternoons in Chaim Berlin. He also delivered to Pirche Boys in Williamsburg. And several additional Vadim were organized with students from Yeshivas all over Brooklyn. And there are others as well. In the 1960s, started to see a demographic change in the Brownsville neighborhood, which had already commenced in the 1950s, but at this point, the neighborhood had become so bad that Rabbi Victor Miller would have to leave the yeshiva every day early to be able to uh, walk down Pitkin Avenue, which was the main shopping thoroughfare of Brownsville, Jewish shopping thoroughfare of Brownsville, while the stores were still open. It would be otherwise too dangerous to walk later. And these demographic changes in Brassville are a fascinating story in itself. Books have been written about it, and I would love the opportunity to talk about it someday, as it's something I've read quite a bit about and am fascinated by. But I guess we'll have to wait for that for another time. But either way, these demographic changes in the neighborhood... um, uh, led to the Chaim Berlin moving from Brownsville to Farakaway in 1964. In the first year, uh, Miller made the long commute from East Flatbush to Farakaway every day, which was uh, quite a long ride. After a year, he decided to leave Chaim Berlin. Uh, Chaim Berlin did go through some rough times afterwards. The move to Farakaway, the decline of both the quality and the quantity of the student body for a short period of time, um, until it was revitalized a couple of years later. Um, Rav Hutner at this time, part, part-time moved to Israel, but they eventually recovered and they were restored to all its glory and even more uh, when they moved to Flatbush. But by then, Rav Miller had left already a while before and he uh, you know, and, and didn't have an official position in, Yeshi, in, in Chaim Berlin. Uh, and he was focused on, on other, other uh, ways to influence both his own community as where he was a congregational rabbi and beyond. Uh, at this point, he takes on a lot of other activities. Uh, he had published his first book, Rejoice, O Youth, in 1962. And that book, that publication, which was really a watershed moment in his life, in his career, in the influence that he had on others, and more importantly, the scope of his influence, or his circle of influence. Um, he, he 
Zohar was received, he saw the need. Again, in 1962, there's very little English literature, Torah literature out there. This is the pre-Art Scroll era. This is when there's almost nothing published in English um, in, uh, for, in, you know, at that time, Torah reviews of, of, uh, or Torah commentary. And um, that he, he came to realize what, you know, what his calling was, not just in the printed word, but in the wider scope of things. Many years earlier, his Rebbe, Rabbi Isaac Sher, had invited, invited him to join the faculty of his newly founded Slabatki Yeshiva Ben Abrak, and Rabbi Miller declined, saying that he feels that he has much to accomplish in the United States. He already was a congregational rabbi at the Young Israel of Rugby, which I'm going to get to separately. I'm going to go get to that in part three, speak about his rabbinical career in the Young Israel of Rugby, and then later on their move to Flatbush in the later years, which is, you know, is worth delving into much more extensively, so I'm going to focus on that more in part three. But he also realized that he could reach a much broader audience through authoring books, which you know, we're not that available then, and through other means. In 1965, he became the unofficial mashgiach of another yeshiva, of Gustman, Rabbi Yisrael's of Gustman's Netzach Yisrael, Ramilus of Vilna yeshiva, um, until that yeshiva lo- relocated to Israel in 1970, uh, five years later. He delivered, <coughs> excuse me, he delivered several shmuzin and vadim each week in a variety of subjects. He was invited to join with them uh, the move to Israel, but he again declined, insisting that he still had much to accomplish and teach in the United States. In the 1960s, also, Rafragamayshe Kamenovich of the Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn invited Rabbi Miller to deliver Shmuzin in the Mir Yeshiva in Brooklyn, also to teach classes in Chumash, in Nach, in, in Jewish history, um, which he became quite proficient in and wrote books about Jewish history eventually. He loved Jewish history. He also delivered Vadim for the Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway, other yeshivas in Brooklyn for a short time, in Reptavia Goldstein's Yeshiva Eme Kalacha. It was also in 1966 that he started teaching girls in Beis Yaakov. Uh, from 1966 to 1972, he taught in Vichna Kaplan's Beis Yaakov in Barra Park and in Williamsburg. And he said that his teaching the, the, uh, in the Beis Yaakov to, to the girls were his, uh, his favorite classes because he felt more free to be able to express himself, his original ideas, uh, more liberated, and where he, whereas in the yeshiva setting, he felt more reserved, because the framework of the yeshiva, you know, he didn't feel as comfortable expressing uh, as independent uh, views. He delivered uh, his classes with clarity, he taught them to take notes of the classes, um, and he would, actually, that was the test, he, the way he graded the courses was by inspecting their notebooks from his classes. If it was neat and legible, then they passed the course, because then he knew they would use it in subsequent years. Um, he was a big promoter of Beis Yaakov girls' education, seeing it with utmost importance, and advised many who sought his counsel to teach girls in Beis Yaakov. In the 1950s, he also began a daily practice which would become one of the most famous hallmarks of his personal life, which was his daily walk. Originally, it was because he suffered from back pain, but he eventually came to be part of his life, part of the whole of Victor Miller's story, because he saw it as beneficial for his health, and he also saw it as beneficial for his spiritual growth and development. He would use it to think, he would use it to study, he would use it to contemplate about the world, about Hashem, he would use it to teach people who accompanied him, and it became this became part of his, uh, the daily walk became a very much big part of his life. He also increased the number of Adam that he initiated or was requested to deliver, all with no thought of without getting paid, however you say the word. Each one geared toward another demographic. He would give one for teachers, for working people, for younger students, for 
for for all types um, for over the phone to faraway communities. Again, he was like a pre-Zoom pioneer here. Um, each one was accompanied by practical exercises on character development and self-growth. He he rarely vacationed. The most he did was in the 1950s and 60s. He would go up early 60s. He would go upstate to upstate New York in the to the mountains for a few weeks with his family. Um, and his wife, of course, Rebetzin Chana Etel, was a very big part of the story. Of uh, she was very dedicated, very had a very you know great and loving home and relationship and children. And she would help running the shul and managing his schedule. And later on in life, distributing distributing excuse me the cassette tapes. She ran fundraisers for all kinds of charity causes. She was a very special woman. She would look after shul members and their health and and advise them in their personal lives and challenges. Um, it's interesting that Rev. Miller once said that at one point he wanted to write children's stories that had a spiritual message. He also mentioned that he wanted to write a novel depicting the beauty of a large Torah family. Neither project materialized, but it's interesting that he saw value as a novelist. Um, he was a uh, very loving and dedicated father as well. He uh, used During his son's lunch break, he would teach personally teach his son Algebra, geometry, and trigonometry. I don't even know how he knew that. I guess maybe from his high school days. Um, I don't even know what trigonometry is. Forget about knowing the subject. Either way, um, he would write letters and also make drawings for his children and later grandchildren, make things exciting, fun for them, and happy. And He would sing and dance with them, give them prizes and money. He'd take them to a zoo in Cholomite. They were coming up to Pesach. So I saw in the book that by Bedikas Chametz, he would hide chocolate with the ten pieces of bread which were distributed so that it would make it more exciting for his, uh, for his children. He was very particular about eating and drinking healthy. Um, he didn't ha- have caffeine or sugar drinks. Um, he, uh, he, he, he also liked having guests at his home. And one time, one of his students in Chaim Berlin asked him if he can come uh, come to his home to eat. So then, for Shabbos. So the next day, he called him over. He sits him down and asks very seriously, "Do you prefer the top or the bottom of the chicken?" And this is very important because he wanted to serve his guests properly. Um, he he had an amazing sensitivity for for others. He um, he. Uh, would care for them, loving them, would bless them all the time. He distributing tzedakah, and uh, you know he would all kinds of stories like that. It's very interesting. He he would um, on his daily walks, he would look around if he would notice someone coming out of a building that uh, needed needed assistance holding the door open for them. You know, a total stranger, very often not even Jewish. He would run over and help help someone with the door. If he was walking past someone with a wheelchair. He um, he would walk slowly so that it felt that if he would walk briskly next to someone with a wheelchair, then they would feel bad. Um, a congregant once called him to ask him where he was, called him from a payphone, um, asked him where he was because he was late for a, a class he was supposed to deliver in the in the shul, and uh, and when he came, when he came, he gave the guy a quarter. He said, "There's no reason that you have to pay for my tardiness." What struck me, it was interesting, everything I've read about him was how real and practical he was. Nothing was theory. Everything was practice, and he had pretty creative ways to how to be practical, living in the very real world. And one of the more funny stories of this, illustrations of this, was that he once asked a congregant to assist him by searching for discarded rubber bands on the streets, on the street for to be able to use for to bundle his cassette tapes. 
when this fellow amassed an impressive collection, he told and presented it to Rabbi Miller. He said to him, look, this was an exercise to assist with Kedusha, with holiness, to look at the floor and not to gaze at anything inappropriate when walking in the city streets. So these rubber bands have holiness to it. He was very concerned about safety. A few of his uh, followers founded the Torah Safety Commission. He encouraged buckling seatbelts, teaching children about safety, road safety, home safety, driving safety. He didn't speak to drivers um, when they um, were driving because he felt that they should be focused on the road. He also wouldn't talk in the car if someone was sleeping, so they shouldn't be disturbed uh, for sleeping. I want to just use a couple of minutes at the end here to share uh, from that congregant I mentioned earlier uh, some recollections of his. He was very gracious in sharing. He wished to retain his anonymity, I, I said, but I just want to relate some short excerpts. Again, this fellow literally sent me pages and pages and pages of material. I'm going to read a few short excerpts from this uh, this email that he sent me. The Rav's intent and program was to build up his mispalim so that they can make the most of themselves. As he often said, a person should be ambitious to make something out of himself. That included Torah study, mitzvah observance, midos, etc. In the old shul, meaning in East Flatbush, the young Israel of rugby, where I first met the Rav and came from time to time when I was still single, in the early days the rabbi did not have full control of the shul, as there were elements that opposed him. He nevertheless pressed on. I was not there, but I am told that one of his campaigns was that all the women should cover their hair. This does not sound like much now, but back then it apparently was, as it was decidedly not the style even among the Orthodox. I've heard that one woman, Mrs. Medetsky, was, was the first, and in the course of time it caught on. Many of those who did not like this creeping from kite left for other places. The Rav in later years would joke, we had a membership drive, we drove out half the members. Those who followed... Him to the new shul, the Beis Yisrael of Rugby Shul, which opened in March of 1975, were his loyalists. There in Flatbush, there was never any question who was in charge. There were no elections for officers. Those committed to the rabbi held their positions year after year. First and foremost, he wanted the men to learn. Everyone was encouraged to record the Gemara Shiurim, which were held every morning and every evening, and to review it during the week. Each year, a major Masechta was tackled, usually Monday and Wednesday evening, and also Sunday afternoon. The first Masechta in 1976 was Sanhedrin. When we reached Parak Chelek, almost all Agadata, which he learned in the Sunday slot, he invited the women to attend in the Ezus Nashim. And for almost a year, he made it particularly spectacularly interesting for all. He wanted everyone to come to this year. And when he began a new Masechta in the, in the fall, opening night was memorable. All seats taken, although some would drop out over the course of time. One year, I remember, the Numa was Menachas. It so happened that scheduled for opening night was a young um, member of the shul was scheduled to be married, and many of those who would have attended opted for the wedding instead. The result was that attendance was disappointing. Boy, did we hear about that. The Rav sternly told everyone that the following week he would be restarting the Masechta anew, and he expected everyone to be present. You can be sure that everyone was present. <laughs> End off with that, and we'll get to much more in part three. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. I hope you enjoyed.